Hi, I'm Chesney in Aarhus, Denmark. And I'm Weldon in Nyeserson, France. And you're listening to... American on the Outside. Our very long American weekend was good. We went to Picardy, which is the part of France north of Champagne and uh, south of Belgium. And we uh, went to the Cruzette cast iron factory and got some cast iron. What kind of cast iron? One thing is a is a roasting pot. Uh, one thing, I don't know what it is, but my wife does, and she has plans with it. It's like a skillet with ridges on it. And then some small, like some ramekins and other stuff that will pawn off as gifts on people. Excellent. Those are good gifts. Yes. Uh, and it was just, it, we, we mostly just wanted to get out of Paris, uh, and we accomplished that. But the uh, the drive out to the east is really nice. If if you're ever in France, I really recommend seeing Picardy. I guess I had expected because it's close to the Low Countries that it would be like flat and featureless. But there's these huge. It, it's also as I mentioned near Champagne, so there's you know the, the same rolling hills that people grow the grapes on. Uh, but in Picardy, they grow potatoes. That's their that's their crop. Potatoes and rhubarb apparently are their their crop. And, and do they have special potatoes and or rhubarb dishes that... Uh... They do. They do. They have fried rhubarb, uh, though it's not quite in season yet, so we didn't get that. Uh, rhubarb and apple are the basis of most of the desserts. It's a lot like Normandy in that way, which it's also near. Um, the food was great. That's I love getting out of Paris because... You'll eat this just absolutely delicious meal, and when you see the bill, you assume they forgot to charge one of you or something. Like we, you know, the two of us ate for thirty six euros, like three courses and a and a bottle of wine, and that's that's less than one person in Paris. You know, yeah. <laughs> one thing that's striking about the region is that there are no trees or buildings older than a hundred years for the most part there, mm-hmm. because that was ground zero of the Western Front in World War One. And just everything above ground level was was flattened. Wow. Did they save the cathedrals, I hope, at least? So we went to uh, Rem or Reims, depending on whether you're saying it in English or French. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was captured by the Germans in World War One, and so it didn't it it didn't get destroyed. right. But there's this band sort of west of of Rem. That goes up to the cha- to the Channel Coast, where still there's no old growth trees. There's um, farmers will still occasionally uncover unexploded shells, and they have to call in the ordnance people. And yeah, it's amazing how in many European cities and parts of Europe that's still a reality is that they can find an ordnance and an exploded bomb that was dropped or shot or landmine, I guess, that was buried. And yeah, they have to call the bomb squad, the World <laughs> well, War II I, bomb there's squad. A, yeah, there's a there's a branch of, of the gendarmerie that that's what they do. Mm. They respond to, oh, we found a mustard gas shell oh, in the in the uh, the back 40. In Germany, it happens a lot. You'll hear about you know, a block in Hamburg was evacuated today because construction crews were digging. Oh, right. Found... I remember. Yeah. Yeah. They have. It's so strange to still have these leftover bits of really destructive history to remind you mm-hmm. how terrible that time was. They just stay with you forever. So what how did your weekend end up going? <laughs> well, Weldon. What a long year this past weekend was for us. Um, Oh, no. Oh, yes. So I'm going to have to take it back to last Monday when I started to spontaneously break out in hives. And because I'm very American in this, like, before I bother a doctor, I'm, I'm going to try and figure out 
what it is based on my symptoms so I can kind of get a feel for what it might be and what we're talking about here and sh- and should I be concerned or should I just try wait it out and see if mm-hmm. I don't have to go to the doctor even though I live in you in this country with universal health care this is literally <laughs> what the doctors are for um, it's not going to cost me any more money than I've already paid into the system um <laughs> So I landed on something, I'm going to say it wrong, but it's something called dermatographia. Um, And it's essentially when you scratch scratch or itch or there's any sort of friction on your skin, it breaks out in like hives. Oh, no. Yeah, it's... It's really not pleasant. I've been taking antihistamines and doing all that, and it manages the itching, not so much the red splotches, but the itching part at least, which is Mm. 90% of it. And then on Saturday, I did not feel well. I had all of a sudden my jaw started hurting, and then I got these chest pains. And I recalled Elizabeth Banks did a short film called Just a Little Heart Attack, that, oh, right. that basically chronicles how a woman typically experiences heart attacks. Because it's not the symptoms they tell men to look for. Right. Which is what's on all the posters and everything. Right. And so, you know, I was like, well, what's happening here? I, this is very strange and I don't feel well. And, and so I went back, you know, I Googled <laughs> again. I Googled the movie. And it's a little short film, and I was like, eh, this is weird, and I don't know what a heart attack feels like. I've never had one before, but this is really not pleasant, and I, I don't know what's happening. So I called 112, which is the emergency number mm-hmm. here in Denmark, and um, they asked me a couple of questions, and they sent an ambulance to attend me and to take some readings. They looked at me and they did um, an EKG and they were like, we don't mm-hmm. see anything here, but out of an abundance of caution, we're gonna take you to the hospital and have them run some blood tests to see if there was an event that's not registering now. Cause you know, sometimes they're discovering now that sometimes you can have these signs and symptoms of a, of a heart situation days before the actual huge event and Mm -hmm. if you can if you know your body well enough to sort of feel like something is off you can sort of preemptively head it off at the pass and it's less catastrophic than if you put it off and wait the problem of course is is like there's a multitude of things that feel weird in your chest you can have like acid reflux or heartburn or gas or any of those things but because if you've never had a heart attack before, how do you know what it's supposed to feel like? How do you know? Right. Right. So they took me to the hospital, did a bunch of blood work. It, it's all normal. Um, <laughs> so that was that was Saturday. Sunday, my youngest son tested positive for COVID. Oh, no. So the COVID fairy has officially visited our home. Oh, so sorry. And Alex just about an hour ago, tested positive as well. Oh, jeez. So we are dropping like flies around here. (laughs) In addition to that, come to find out, these hives that I'm having, not an additional autoimmune disease that I have. It's actually a reaction to my third booster shot. Oh. Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. It is a delayed reaction to my third booster shot. This is a side effect for people right they have this... yeah i mean it's it's doing something to your immune system so it, it won't always be consequence free right right <laughs> and so yeah and also a lot of people who are reporting these hives are also having like unexplained disconcerting chest pains so oh dear so that's been that's been my week let's talk for a minute about our interviewees so our interviewees this week, this is our first, I believe, pair interview. It is. A married couple. Uh, and of the two, one, Lise, is our first naturalized American on the outside. Mm-hmm. So we're very happy. That's a sort of new perspective we hadn't had before. Yep. And uh, I met them when uh, Al was working at the U.S. Embassy in Paris. Mm-hmm. 
and they now live in the UK. And uh, well, we can we can let them tell their story. Yeah. So here is Al and Lise in St. Albans. All right. Well, Al, Lise, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we'll start out with the question we start all these with. Where are you from? Uh, so I'm from the U.S. Uh, more specifically, I'm from Maine. Um, I grew up in southern Maine, so like Kennebunk, Saco area, for people who are familiar with that neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I'm from Belgium. I'm from Flanders, um, and I'm a naturalized U.S. citizen since uh, two years. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yep. Welcome. So uh, I understand you all just had uh, some adventures getting to and from the continent. <laughs> uh, you want to describe what, what traveling is like right now? Yeah, I mean, a nightmare, but I think most people know that. So do you want to? Yeah, sure. Um, So we were going to go to Belgium um, to see my family over uh, Christmas and New Year's. We're going to go for two weeks. Um, And the problem really was that the COVID rules kind of kept shifting. Um, They shifted, I think, three times between when I booked our Eurotunnel tickets um, in early December and when we actually went in mid-December. Wow. So... Um, the main problem was really kind of France, um, which couldn't quite decide how badly it wanted to sort of keep the British out. <laughs> um, and so I sort of had an inkling. We were supposed to go there on the Saturday, um, but I sort of had an inkling. Whenever they change the COVID rules, they do so from Saturday morning. Um, and and they've were been rumors. kind of, yeah, they, there were been mm-hmm. kind of rumors. So I was like, shit, shit, shit. I think this is what's going to happen. Um, so I'd sort of panic bought, thank you, anxiety. Um, a ticket for the Friday evening as well. So just in case we could drive um, on the Friday evening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the end, the French did change the COVID rules on Thursday. So we yeah. had this sort of mad dash. Like the Von um, Trapp family. Like the Von Trapp right. family. <laughs> <laughs> the singing. Yeah, um, well, we weren't so yeah. much singing. No, yeah. we weren't singing so much as sitting in traffic outside of Folkestone <laughs> with everyone else in the UK um, trying to get out. But what was sort of interesting was that... Um, so for anyone who's not familiar with how the Eurotunnel works, basically, you go to, from the UK side, you go to Folkestone, and you go through, like, check-in, if you have a pet, which we did. She was the easiest. She was yeah, super surprisingly. So, <laughs> so you go check your pet in, and they make sure that your pet has their stuff sorted out. And then you go up to, first, um, like, a row of Border Patrol booths, essentially, kind of like toll booths. And... Mm-hmm. The first one is the Brits who are letting you out of the UK. And then the second one is the French who are letting you into France. Um, and then when you're coming back from Calais, it's the same thing, but in reverse, right? So the Brits are no problem. They like, they they don't care. Really. Please, we don't they're, care. As far as we can tell, um, they're just sort of like, oh, like happy Christmas and send us on our way. But the French were where everyone was panicking and these rules were supposed to come in starting at midnight France time. So that's 11 p.m. Mm -hmm. UK time. And um, so everybody was trying to like get out before the French rules came into place because no one was really quite sure of what was going to happen. Um, But but if you're in Schengen when they they switch over, yeah. Right. So we were both kind of like, "Eh," about it. And the line is moving very slowly. All these cars in front of us are are taking a while um, at the the little toll booth thing um, to convince the French that they should be allowed in. And so Lise is like, put my passport on top. Put my passport on top. Because she's used her Belgian passport, right? Burgundy passport. Because she is an EU citizen. She's like, put it on top. Let them know that we're not not the droids they're looking for. We didn't vote for Brexit. So And so I have, like, my U.S. passport, like, my tourist passport underneath, and her passport on top. We pull up. We hand it over. Um, Fortunately for us, we both speak French, you know, enough to be like, oh, bonsoir. Yeah, it was totally ridiculous. Well, everyone ahead of us had taken at least five minutes. We were in and out in about, what, like a minute, yeah. a minute 30. And I think it really was that they were like, oh, you're not British. Like, have a great time. <laughs> like, Merry Christmas. And send yeah. us on our way. And coming back, it was pretty much the same thing. We were sort of, we had taken like 50 COVID tests, um, done all the stuff with the dog, everything like that. And But the problem coming back was that the French, the French weren't letting people out of France if they could not prove to the satisfaction of the French border force that they 
were resident in the United Kingdom. So, which is bizarre, huh. right? Because they don't want you to be in France in the first place. Yeah. Because allegedly you are riddled with COVID-19, but they also don't want to let you out because, yeah. like, <laughs> screw you. Yeah, because everyone Brexit thought it was people. about the British not letting us in, but that was never You couldn't even get, you couldn't even get to the care. British toll booths. Yeah. Like, you couldn't even get to their border check. The French is one. And I think... Like, as a recovering consular officer, I was like, I, is that even legal? I mean, I guess France right. has the right to control their own borders. And I suppose that what they don't want happening is people getting trapped in the no man's land between mm -hmm. France and the UK, essentially, like in between these two sets of toll booths. But yeah, it was very, it was very, so it was very nerve wracking, yeah. particularly because I, as an American who is here on sufferance of Lee's, the European citizen on the European settlement scheme, which was mm. like, is now over, basically, because <laughs> of Brexit. Um, I have a BRP, which is like a British residency permit. It's a card, you know, like a residency card. Mm -hmm. Lise has nothing. She has her European passport and like her good name to convince them. They give you like a code to show that you have pre-settled yeah. status, but she has no real paperwork to show that she is really, truly a resident in the United Kingdom. So mm. we were kind of worried, not so much about me, but about and like we had a copy of our yeah. wedding certificate and stuff and that's really i was gonna say that's really the kind of stuff that it was about right because i mean we weren't really trying to get out of the COVID testing stuff that wasn't really <laughs> the issue i mean we're vaccinated we tested before and after and a billion different times um but we were concerned that either the french were going to not let allison in because she's not a european citizen or the brits weren't gonna let me back in because she wasn't um, european because citizen. i'm european right. Yeah. Um, so it was really about that kind of that kind of stuff more than anything else. But it was definitely an adventure. Um, I'm still, you know, kind of happily surprised that it all worked out. Yeah. Ultimately, again, it was no problem. They sort of asked us again, like we did it all in. French, yeah, they were very friendly. Which my impression was that that went a long way. That opened so um, many doors here. Yeah. It was yeah. very. Yeah. As soon as we started speaking French, it was very like, oh, bisou. Like everybody was. <laughs> yeah. happy. Yeah, it, people were much, much more. Yeah. Um, like happy to see us um so that yeah we were very lucky that way but we pulled up i handed over my card and all of my stuff the guy asked well where do you live and we told him we live in the uk yeah. and um he sort of asked if we had any other documents we had we had everything we had our water bill our council <laughs> test, car registration yeah we had everything you know marriage, short, or marriage yeah, certificate. short of like everything. blood tests or something yeah. we had everything for them and so we just handed everything over and we we're like yeah. That's our council tax bill. See, like we're real. <laughs> you can let us through. And they did. And um, and then the, the Brits were totally fine. Yeah. They said, oh, we're in the UK. Are you living? We told them. And they were like, oh, yeah. welcome back. Come on in. They didn't care. Yeah, the um, whole thing just kind of felt sort of 1940s Hollywood film set it in It was very like Europe. Yeah, Checkpoint Charlie. Yeah. Checkpoint Charlie, yeah. <laughs> now entering the French sector. Yeah, it was. It had very that bad. vibe to it, which was funny because on the Belgian side, it was like nothing. That was fine. Nobody. And coming from, from Belgium into France as well, there was no. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Well, did you have a happy Christmas? <laughs> we did. Yeah, it was lovely. We spent two weeks in Belgium with no issues. Um, yeah, the only real stress was getting in and getting out again. Right. I find that's true almost always. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> even in normal times, the stress of going through customs in any airport is like, oh, am I going to miss my flight? Or why is yeah. this line so long? But yes, yeah. and then add in to it this whole pandemic where will they have have the rules changed will they let me in will i be yeah. stuck here you know you, you probably know people as we do who have been stuck in countries because of this yeah. pandemic yeah. for extended period of time i know times. somebody from australia who was trapped in germany for like six months um because the flights kept getting canceled he couldn't get out mm. he handled it with a lot more uh equanimity than i would have i think <laughs> but we were yeah, it was like, it hasn't been this hard to get someone out of Germany uh, since an event we won't discuss here. But <laughs> um, yeah, he was he was really struggling, and it wasn't really, really yeah, and it wasn't that he was doing anything wrong, you know, or that they there were vaccination issues or any of that. There was none of that. It was purely that the Australian government kind of kept kind of opening and closing and opening mm -hmm. and closing the borders, and so flights kept getting scheduled and canceled. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think the the UK to Belgium thing has been particularly sort of weird for me because I'm I've. I mean, I've lived in the UK. I moved to the UK for university in 2006, and I've done that trip 
so many times mm-hmm. on the Eurostar. Mm-hmm. Eurostar hundreds of times. I did it every week when she when had Allison to like premiere was, what carte blanche I status. I did carte blanche status. So it's just something that I've never really experienced. Is like. And I know that's obviously privilege and, and passport privilege and, and whatever, but it is genuinely a border where I'm sort of like, okay, you know, it's it's not a big deal, right? Like they kind of check your suitcase and make sure you don't have anything strapped up on your person and then you just go through. So for all these COVID traffic rules, to um, travel rules even, to, to become a thing um, has just been really weird. Like like places feel a lot further um, away from each other than they, they did previously. Mm-hmm. And I think the conflation of that with Brexit obviously has not um, yeah. done anybody any favors. I think I don't think it's very controversial to say that at this point, mm-hmm. um, because you know my impression is that there is a political angle to it, and that um, you could shortly before we came back from from Belgium, the Macron had told the French border force. Would he say be tolerant to be quote, tolerant unquote, to our travelers towards, towards UK travelers? And it was very and again, like as somebody with and that's like of, not legally enforceable. What right, does that mean? As somebody with sort of visa experience, you know, border security experience, I sort of I just I my poor father-in-law had to listen to me. I was like, this is ridiculous. How does that mean? Either it's the regulations or it's not. Like you can't ask. <laughs> Some guy yeah. to at a border crossing <laughs> to be like, oh, well, you seem nice though, so I'll These let you right. know. If it turns out that the nice person you let in has a kilo of coke in their trunk, they're not going to be tolerant of you when you're, <laughs> you know, if you're the guy who sort of opened the gates and let them into the country or let them out of the country or what, what have you. So I think I, I am not unsympathetic to the the people who are sort of at the yeah. Euro Tunnel or at the borders trying to enforce this because I think that they're being put in kind of a difficult situation um, where, and and a lot of them were hired before Brexit was even a thought in anyone's head, right? So they never thought that they were going to have to be dealing with this on this scale in the first place. I mean, when they, a lot of these guys got this job, they thought it was gonna be all third country nationals. And and then now they've been told, no, no, you have to check essentially everybody who's coming through that border Mm -hmm. crossing, which is a huge change for them. And I I don't know training wise, what kind of training they perceived or not. Like at, at the train stations, they had to like build new passport control booths, didn't they? Because there wasn't. Yeah. There was yeah. just very minor passport control before. And the Brits started yeah. allowing Americans to come in through the E gates. I think right around when we moved to the UK, so it was maybe a year and six months ago, a year and mm-hmm. a change. Yeah. And I think I don't know. Like this is total speculation on my part, but. I my impression or sort of my assumption was that that was in part motivated by um, Brexit and because border force wasn't going to have the man because there's a lot of Americans who are coming back and forth between Paris and London, especially mm-hmm. in the summer. I mean, <laughs> not now. No, but, right now. But but right now. <laughs> um, and so I think that there was this thought of, OK, well, we can relieve some of the pressure on border force by sort of allowing, you know, by by allowing more nationalities beyond just British people and like EU nationals to use to use the gates because I think the assumption was that they were going to have to be checking more people coming through the EU the, coming from the EU than they were before. But you know, like again, I don't know if that's the case, but that's sort of how I read that decision. So how how long have you guys lived in the UK? Um, a about a year and a half. So we moved from Paris last August. Um. Well, right. Well, actually, I've I've lived here for longer because I got the job here because I work at a British university um, and I got the job in September 2019. Um, So just in time to get comfortable before the pandemic. It's been great. Um, And she was still working in Paris then. So I sort of lived primarily here, but kind of came to Paris most weekends. Um, And then during the pandemic, obviously, in the first lockdown, I was in Paris for a little while um but the the proper move with you know with the dog and everything um was in august 2020 Mm -hmm. so buddy off yeah so i drove please and our dog and some of our stuff over um and sort of dropped them off and then drove back to paris at the end of the weekend and i had two more weeks left of work i was working at the u.s embassy at the time and um i had two more weeks left at the embassy finished up sold my car and got on the Eurostar and went back 
uh, went back to the UK just in time for the new quarantine on people who were coming from France. So thanks, UK. <laughs> um, but it's been I lived in the UK prior to this. So I did my graduate school at the University of York uh, up north. And then we lived in the UK for about a year uh, when I was a kid, when I was 10. And mm -hmm. so also in the London area. And I did study abroad here for a semester in, in, as an undergraduate, too. So I was pretty familiar um, with the UK like prior to moving here. Um, but and, this time we've been here about a year and a half, all, all of us sort of together. And for those of us whose UK geography is weak, where is St. Albans roughly? So St. Albans is north of London. It's um, what, like half an hour? Yeah, like literally it's, just north of London. Yeah. Um, so from our train station to King's Cross, it's about a half an hour, 25 oh, minutes. Okay. Yeah. So give it like five years and it probably will. It will be, <laughs> It'll be London, right? Yeah. yeah. Towards London in like five to 10 years. It's fine. Yeah. And you teach at a university. Which university do you teach at? I teach at the University in Her of Hertfordshire, okay. um, which is um, in Hatfield, which is kind of about half an hour um, from here. Um, and yeah, I teach film studies. So I've been doing that in September 2019. Wow. How did you come to film studies? Um, well, I actually, I started off as a historian. I did my undergrad degree in, in history. Um, and then I kind of drifted into art history. And then from art history, I kind of drifted into film. Um, because most of what I do is film historical. So um, I, I focus on sort of Hollywood in the first half of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, roughly. So I always say that I'm a historian pretending to be a film studies person. And I don't think that's entirely wrong. That is very cool. And what what do you do in the in the UK, Al? Oh, so I am working in the relocation industry now. Um, I started out. I worked at O2 at a cell phone store for mm. well nine months. Yeah. Um, and switched jobs in September. So I work for a company that assists um, other corporations who are moving people internationally. Um, so, for instance, if you have like Nestle or Amazon or Facebook, any of these companies um, that are taking someone from like the US and moving them to the UK or taking them from Germany, moving them to Singapore, whatever. Uh, my company um, sort of coordinates the move. Um, so my title is a relocation consultant. Um, so I talk with these assignees about their move and um, organize temporary housing for them, organize their shipments for them. Um, reassure them that their dog will probably be okay so they ship it from one place <laughs> to the other that sort of thing um i don't like i'm not personally the moving company obviously mm -hmm. but i um sort of connect them with whatever services they need and then monitor everything to make sure that they're not going to wind up in dusseldorf <laughs> with no place to live and you know no nobody to pick them up at the airport or whatever well, I can say as someone who has uh, moved internationally, both on our own uh, mm -hmm. and with relocation services, relocation services are definitely the way to go. You <laughs> are providing such a valuable service to... I'm certainly trying. It is, I mean, it's a little stressful because you don't want to be the reason that somebody's like move gets all screwed up. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting. And it's sort of, I dovetails. I had never done... I'd never worked in the relocation industry before myself. Um, prior to coming here, I was with the Department of State for 10 years, mm -hmm. but I had moved overseas a bunch of times. So, um, like, I kind of had an idea of, of what sort of things people, you know, are dealing with. Um, but so far, yeah, it's been it's been a good job. Um, it's kind of strange because I've never even been to our office, right? I started, we were working remotely. We're still working remotely. I think we will continue to work remotely uh -huh. potentially forever, which is not a downside for me necessarily, but it is weird because I people who've been there longer refer to the office and I'm like, I guess there is one. I don't know. I've never seen it. So we'll see if I ever see it. So Al, uh, do you find in that work being audibly American is helpful or a hindrance? Um, I get a lot of are you in wait, are you with the London office? And I say, Yes, I am. <laughs> and um Sometimes I think people, I don't know. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think some of the Americans I've dealt with have been kind of like happy, sort of like they were expecting mm -hmm. one thing and they kind of got another, but it's not necessarily a bad thing for them. Um, I think that being American I, in sort of our modes of communication, tending to be a little bit more direct 
um, right. has probably been helpful in terms of setting expectations with some of the people that I work with um, who are not always clear on the fact that their company is not a travel agency. And so like the relocation services that are provided are intended to get them from point A to point B so that they can do their job, not to like finance some, you know, international house hunters-esque like <laughs> fantasy that they're having. Um, so I think in that sense, sometimes it, it helps. Um, I think more so my background as somebody who has moved overseas mm -hmm. a bunch of times and has moved from place to place to place. I think that um, has gotten me a long way with a lot of the assignees that I work with. Like I'm, I'm, I've been emailing this one woman who recently moved to France and she was very nervous. She wasn't actually even my assignee. I was covering for somebody, but I ended up emailing her and she was um, emailing about her dog. She's bringing her dog with her. She was very like nervous about it. And I said, well, I literally just did this a couple years ago with my dog. It was totally fine. Like she just slipped the whole way. They barely looked at her paperwork when she got in. So your mileage may vary, but I can tell you that having done it, it's not it's not impossible to do. And, and, you know, you may be pleasantly surprised. I got an email from her yesterday, or no day before yesterday where she was saying, Oh, we, we got to France and the dog did great. And you're right. They didn't even look at the paperwork. <laughs> I can't believe they didn't look at our paperwork. I said, yeah, but if you hadn't had it, then, yeah, then they would have see it. They so would. yeah. So I think, I think that actually more so, and particularly because we deal with a lot of visa issues, right? So having worked in mm -hmm. visa, when people are sort of like, well, what if I did this crazy thing? I'm like, I'm not the visa services people. You talk to them. Maybe the Germans do their visas differently, but I feel like that's a bad idea. Um, <laughs> I, and I would not recommend that you do that. So, you know, and usually they come back and they're like, yeah, you were right. They said we couldn't do that. I was like, yeah. Kind of <laughs> kind no, of they really thing. want you to follow all of the, all of the, yeah. the checklist. There's a checklist. And they really yeah. want you to, like, follow that. You know, we live in a society. There's <laughs> rules and you've got to follow. And sometimes those visa rules are onerous. I will be the first to say that. But um, that is not really the area of your move where you want to sort of ad lib, I don't think. No. <laughs> no. Sure. Got to follow that script. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And then I guess the other side of that question would be uh, for Lise, um, you mentioned during the getting back from the continent, sort of juggling the multiple legal identities you have as, as a U.S. and Belgian citizen. Um, in terms of the social identities, do, do you uh, do people think of you as that Belgian film professor, that American film professor, that British film professor? I mean, what what identity rests most easy on you most of the time? Um, well, people generally consider me the sort of Belgian in the room, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, my British friends kind of know me as that. Um, people at work too tend to kind of think me think of me as Belgian. Um, but it's kind of interesting because obviously I've never really lived in Belgium as an adult, right? I moved when mm. I was 18. Then I lived in the UK for um, quite a long time. I lived in the US briefly, I lived in the UK again lived in the US again, lived in France. So it's been sort of uh -huh. a journey. So I'm Belgian and I do sort of, that's my primary identity for me. But at the same time, when I go back to Belgium, I'm also very well aware of the fact that I haven't permanently lived there basically since I was about 18 and a half. Um, so there are certain things that I just don't, that I understand in the UK, for example, and I know how they work in the UK, mm -hmm. but I necessarily understand how they work in Belgium um, and that's quite an interesting it's something that I quite, quite often think about because it's a very sort of fragmented identity right. in a way yeah and, and then I mean the Belgian identity itself having multiple components doesn't doesn't make that simpler I guess <laughs> yeah that's true although in terms of my family my family are basically all from the same very small <laughs> area so I do in Belgium have sort of a, a place where I'm very clearly from um, in that both my parents are from the same village and all four of my mm. grandparents are from there as well. And I'm pretty sure we were there when the Romans came and left again back in the day. Um, the so guy. Belgium, yeah, within Belgium, I have quite a, a specific um, kind of identity. Um, but obviously, yeah, Belgium as a country is <laughs> fragmented in itself, right? It's you know, the, the sort of sheer number of governments is uh, <laughs> baffling to many. So what made you decide to 
get a second citizenship? Uh, well, we're a same-sex couple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is the um, yeah, the I proposed to Lee. So in 2016, I was in Pakistan uh, working at the U.S. consulate in Karachi, mm-hmm. and 2016, the election happened. And uh, I was responsible for arguably the worst and least romantic proposal in mm-hmm. history, uh, in which I said, I guess we should get married now because yeah. um, because of what was going on and because of Mike Pence and everyone knew how he felt about gay people, gay getting, people married. getting gay people generally and gay people getting married in particular. And um, so we kind of we. It was not terribly like we had been planning to get married at some point anyway, I think is fair to say. But that definitely sort of put the pedal to the metal as far as getting that done, because we didn't know. And at the time, a lot of very sort of well-meaning straight people in particular were posting extremely panicky and upsetting things on Facebook about just news stories and things about gay marriage gay marriage is gonna go away marriage equality is over mike pence is gonna you know do this and that and like just really really and and kept like messaging me and lee's and like Mm. putting things on our facebook walls and stuff and being like it's a well-meaning way we support you and this is terrible but it was actually extremely triggering (laughs) to the point that i finally sort of had to say to a couple people like please look please Please stop telling please stop i know who mike pence is like we're cool you don't need to tell me please stop so we, um, I applied for a K-1 visa for Lee's, which for the uninitiated is a fiancé, the 90-day fiancé visa. Yeah. And we used to joke about we should apply to be on the show because you'd probably get picked given like, and I was oh, the totally. officer yeah. at the time. And um, she went and applied for her K-1 visa yeah. in London, got it. And then we went to the U.S. I got back from Pakistan and she came over a couple weeks after that. Yeah. We got married a few days after that in my hometown um just sort of you know at the town hall essentially and then applied for her adjustment of status which is to get a green card so again a k-1 visa which took a good long time took forever oh my god um so a k-1 visa is a non-immigrant visa technically and you must apply within 90 days to adjust your status to green to to like a permanent resident status Mm -hmm. lpr status um in order to continue to be legal in the u.s which we did swiftly we did swiftly (laughs) uscis was um somewhat less swift but i will say we went when we went into their office in like fairfax virginia they were actually everyone was very good and like no weirdness from them at all it was just backlog and and, yeah i mean it's the immigration system yeah it was nobody's fault so it was quite because obviously we were going to move to paris in June for Allison's job. And I, I really needed to have it by yeah. that point. Mm. And in the end, I got it in May, I think. Yeah, we so got it. So it was oh, wow. a little stressful at the end there. And it was hard because I didn't want to use my position at the State Department to be sort of unduly influencing the process. Yeah. That felt yucky to me and mm-hmm. morally questionable. So, but then as it was getting closer, I was like, um, we really need to go. Like, we <laughs> So we booked, like, you can make these appointments to go in and just ask questions and stuff. So we did that. And when they saw my order, it turned out the guy that I talked to, some his brother or something had been a Marine security guard in Paris. So he was huh. like, oh, yeah, yeah. So it was fine. It worked out fine. Um, her green card interview was fascinating. Um, the gentleman who interviewed us, he was very nice. But he was like this very, like, former military, like, very sort of, like, straight-laced seeming guy and he went through all the like questions you would expect first and then towards the end he kept asking us questions about our respective like coming out experiences and like when did you realize like you were gay or whatever and i was like this is kind of weird like what is going kind of looking at each other like this seems it turned out that his um son had come out the day before oh my god in the car while they're driving the whole family and so he was trying to figure out i think how to navigate that yes. no pun intended the car and um so we were like that's fine like Let les- lesbian oracles are here to help yeah. you like <laughs> yeah yeah but she got her green card yeah and then we went to france and then we were eligible for something called expeditious naturalization because we were in france on orders and uh. um and so we applied for that i think how long did we wait like six months or a year yeah a little while yeah because we'd done so much paperwork we just like didn't want to do anymore for a yeah. little while and then we applied for that and we got it in January of 2020, right? Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, we got very lucky. 
because um, we didn't know about COVID. We didn't know about any of this. And we went to the States um, for her naturalization ceremony and her passport and everything. Yeah. And um, yeah, she got it. And then we then we returned to Paris. Do yeah. you want to talk about your naturalization experience? Oh, no. I mean, which aspect do you mean? Oh, well, I mean, I thought the ceremony was quite. Oh, yeah. That was so Where they unironically played proud to be an American. Yeah, which is uh, a Lee lot. Greenwood, yeah. And all yeah. of the Americans were sort of sitting there like, I was like, like it was i'm sitting there watching with all these other like spouses yeah. basically of these people who are naturalizing and we're like losing it trying to be oh my like, god no no serious serious yeah and yeah and there were also videos there's like one video and i was like madeline albright talking right and that was great right she's sort of talking about immigrants and what can add very to classy like, very classy lovely and i'm like oh yeah madeline albright i'm here for this right and then there was this like oddly combative video by Donald Trump where he literally seemed to be sort of like, I will punch you in the face, you know. You it should... felt like I was, was... challenged to a fight in the parking lot <laughs> after the ceremony. And I yeah. think he was actually, because what he was saying was actually not that bad. It was not it was objectionable. Like harmless, it was a big emphasis on assimilating, but it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. like objectionable, really. No. It was just the tone was but very weird. But the tone weird. was very confronting and terrifying. And I think we were both like, I don't think we're the... I don't think the, the, we're the people that you're really wanting to welcome yeah, here. But yeah. okay, there was actually another, wasn't there another Belgian there? No, from, uh, his uh, husband, he was American, but one of his parents was from, from Belgium. But I think his husband was the one who was naturalizing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was interesting, from Alst, which is where I was born. So that was a weird uh, coincidence. So all in all, it was actually a good experience. But the terrifying Donald Trump video was perhaps um, a little much... Uh, a little more than I needed at that time. Um, but yeah. yeah, so that was two years ago, and that was actually the last time I was in the U.S., obviously, because then the pandemic happened. And uh, Yeah, I've been back since. Happened. I got back in September to see family, but she was working, and the cost of sort of all of the testing and stuff mm-hmm. was such that, um, and we have an older dog that mm-hmm. we leave here alone, so she ended up staying, and I went I went over. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is really strange, right? Because she's she's an American citizen, but she hasn't really yeah. been back as an American citizen. <laughs> I was an American in the US for about a week. Yeah. <laughs> and then the pandemic happened. But you know, looking forward to to going yeah. back again and some But yeah, like our our moments. initially our primary motivation and and Lee's had, had an experience are, are you okay with me talking about this? <laughs> with your previous experience with Oh family? yeah. I was actually, I was in the U.S. previously from 2010 to um, 2012. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was in the U.S. on a student visa at the time. I did a master's, University of Kentucky, which I really, really enjoyed. Um, And I had a relationship while I was there. Um, You know, obviously a same-sex relationship because I've always been really gay. Um, And at the time, I mean, gay marriage has been legal in Belgium since 2003. It's something that I've sort of taken for granted, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously at the time, same-sex marriage was not legal. I mean, federally in the U.S., it wasn't legal in Kentucky. God knows either. Um, and to me, that was really kind of, you know, probably more traumatic than I realized at the time, right? Because I knew for a fact, I mean, the relationship ended up not working out, but... Um, Lucky for me. <laughs> for you, but um, but the, the sort of pressure that there was on us right because we you know obviously for a while it went quite well for me and my partner at the time and we were always sort of living with that knowledge that whereas Mm. straight people could pretty much do a 90-day fiance fairly easily that just wasn't an option there was no avenue for us to do that and, um, Short of her partner moving to Belgium, because Belgium had same-sex marriage which, at the you time. Know, which made us lucky, because at least we had an option, right? A lot of people didn't. Um, but that was such a sort of, you know, really quite traumatic experience for me that it was really meaningful to me um, to be able to do that now, yeah, right? I, Less than 10 mm-hmm. years later, to actually be able, you know, to live in a world where people like us can actually do that. Um and, you know, I wasn't, you know, as a, a Belgian passport is a pretty privileged passport too, right? Like, I, I don't have any issues traveling. And I was not in, in such a rush to get an American passport, really. But that made it much more meaningful for me. The fact that I now have the right to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, and, um, yeah, I think that for, for me, I mean, I know when we discussed the naturalization, like, um, do we want to pursue naturalization? Like, what do we want to mm. do about this? Um, because at the time we were living in Paris, you know, she has, has an EU passport. It wasn't urgent in the sense no. of 
um, like she needed it to travel or anything. But um, for me, I felt really strongly that particularly in light of what was going on politically at the time, what is going on politically to some extent, um, mm -hmm. it was very, very important to me that we both have a passport in common. Mm -hmm. uh, and because the, we would have the option to live in the same place if yeah. we wanted to, whether or not um, marriage equality, I, which I, you know, realistically, I think that the odds of that going away, thank God, are pretty low. Mm -hmm. But if Prop 8 can know. happen in California, like I don't take that for granted. I don't really know, I, I don't know many, um, many gay people who, are, or I should say people in same-sex relationships who uh, take that for granted. Yeah. Because, you know, really, I, and particularly I was, you know, I was working in, in visas, in immigrant visas, when marriage equality happened and when we started being allowed to process these visa cases and um, issue spousal visas to um, to same sex to same sex partners, and it was, I mean, these visas were like they were like the easiest things in the world to adjudicate because they were all people who'd been together for like ten, twenty 50, years. Yeah. years. Yeah, we would have these like elderly couples. I was in Germany at the time, right? So they had had um, they did not have same sex marriage at the time, but they had same sex like partnership, um, civil civil yeah. partnership laws. But we were having these people coming in who'd been together for like 25 years and they were finally allowed to get married, you know, like their marriage was finally recognized by the U.S. government and they were finally able to move to the U.S. if they'd been wanting to do that or, or what have you. And then that was also sort of the gift that kept on giving because now we're thinking about having kids. And up until very recently, if we had had a child overseas, there would have mm -hmm. been questions that that child would inherit. Um Threat citizenship. Whether what well, right, whether well, whether Lee's could transmit citizenship or not, because the child would have been considered born out of wedlock, which would have added the amount added to the amount of physical presence that Lee's would be required to have. Yeah. As the birthing parent. And we were pretty sure I'd um, literally be like two weeks under the required. We calculate. The yeah, we literally talked about taking her back to the really states for the annoying. summer to stay with yeah. my mom to get up to that to that five. <laughs> yeah. it, it's a difference between five years. Um, for a child out of born out of wedlock, or some time for a child born in wedlock to two U.S. citizen parents, and which is like nothing. Like if you were in an airport at some point, yeah, prior to you have giving birth, then your child's an American citizen, and um, yeah, that whole discussion, and it came up in a lot of foreign service circles, obviously, as you know, as it mm -hmm. would, and um, yeah, it made me extremely angry, in part because. At the time, so this was like 2019, 2018, that this conversation started happening about this specific regulation. And um, it was mathematically impossible for a couple who had gotten married as a result of Obergefell and were able to obtain an immigrant visa as a result of Obergefell. And the, the partner, the non-American partner, had not lived in the U.S. prior to that, prior to mm -hmm. that decision. It was mathematically impossible for them mm -hmm. to have acquired five years of physical presence in the United yeah. States because they, you there know, wasn't they, enough time. There yeah. wasn't enough time. I mean, if they'd studied there before, if they, yeah, for the me, it was before, a bit different. Cause I, I was, could, all, but... I am, I'm almost there in terms of the physical. Yeah. So it was, it was extremely um, frustrating because you have this situation where, well, yeah, we're living overseas. And a lot of these couples were living overseas because the United States would not allow them to get married and would not give them equal rights. And so they were forced into moving to the UK or France or, you know, Belgium or Germany, wherever, mm -hmm. where they were able to have like equitable legal rights mm -hmm. and where custody over their children was not going to be contested and where their marriage, marital status was not going to be contested. And then they're trying to move back to the US now that same sex marriage is legal now that there's marriage equality. And they're being told, well, or we're not even trying to move back, just trying to get their child registered as an American citizen. They're being told, no, 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 your child's not American, but it's okay. And I had people say this to me, well, it's fine. You can just apply for an immigrant visa for your hypothetical child. And I was yeah. like, are you serious? Yeah, it's like, okay, I, yeah, I can't wait yes, to spend but also... thousands of dollars. And also like, okay, sure, I can do that. I have a lot of consular experience and I can fill out the forms and I know what I need to do to make that happen. But most people don't. And why should I, I mean, why should you, you have to? Why should I, and at the time, you know, as somebody working for the Department of State as a consular officer mm -hmm. who knew kind of how often 
DNA tests are required of straight couples, for example, and the extent to which um, heterosexual or straight couples, straight presenting couples are assumed to be genetically related to their mm -hmm. children. Mm -hmm. um, that also was not did not make me very happy because mm -hmm. we're not I don't think I don't think I'm telling state secrets to say that we are not DNA testing every straight couple that comes through <laughs> sure. um, the average no. American citizen services section to make sure that both parents are genetically related to, to the child they're registering. And I suspect there would be a lot of surprises if we were doing <laughs> that. And so that whole thing was sort of in the background as well. So yeah, it is interesting. I think, and I I came out later. Um, I came out in I guess what my, my early thirties, I suppose. Mm. And so I think that um, kind of coming into that as an adult, coming to that as somebody who was already doing consular work before and was already sort of aware of the vagaries of the system. Um, anyway, when you start to sort of really see the impact of that firsthand and, you know, like you personalize it because it's it's you and it's your relationship and it's your hypothetical kid who's going to be affected by this. I think, um, yeah, it was particularly upsetting. But I mean, people have been dealing like same sex couples have been dealing with this for for years. Right. And so it is interesting when I hear sometimes people in the LGBT community kind of saying, oh, well, but marriage equality has been given too much emphasis and, mm. and so on. And and what about trans rights and things? And I totally agree, like I obviously I totally agree that trans people need to be fought for and and, you know, protected and, and yeah. so on. But I think that it's easy to forget how important marriage equality is and how um, profound an impact it's had on people. I mean, this changes people's lives. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, obviously, we're really glad that now we're able to do it. But I'm always very mindful of the fact that six years ago, seven years ago, when I was when I was in high school or college, I never, if you had told me when I was finishing college that by 2015 there would be marriage equality, I don't know that I would have believed that. Um, and the ramifications of, of that decision on certainly our life yeah. have been pretty significant. Um, and I know other, I know a lot of other foreign service couples in similar situations because, you know, again, you're in the foreign service, you meet people overseas, you want to get married. Mm -hmm. uh, and up until 2015, yeah, you just were SOL, basically. Yeah. So anyway, that was really happy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. how did how did you guys meet? Like all geriatric millennials, we met on Facebook. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so we were in a group on Facebook. Do you want to? Yeah. So we were we we were we sort of knew each other from being um, in a group of Facebook together, but we didn't really. I mean, we became Facebook friends, but we never really talked. I mean, I assume we wished each other happy birthday. We talked about Eurovision. We talked about Eurovision, <sighs> which we both enjoy. Eurovision's greatest. Um, <laughs> And then in late uh, 2015, I suppose, we started talking about Star Wars together because this is really not, you know, getting less nerdy. Um, but basically, <laughs> we'd both seen Force Awakens, but we didn't know a lot of other people who had because um, we basically saw it when it came out. And so we started talking together and we basically never stopped, never stopped talking. talking. Um, and that's kind of where it started. And then... Um, from late 2016 onwards, um, we were in a relationship. Um, obviously, Allison was about to um, go, go, to, Pakistan. go to Pakistan for her job. Oh, yeah. at that time. So the timing um, was a little bit off. It was stellar. Yeah. yeah it was um, stellar. But we managed to spend a good amount of time together because she... Um, yeah, the R&R &R point for Karachi was London. Yeah. So, and she mm -hmm. was here finishing up her PhD. So um, I took my R&Rs to the UK. Um, to see Lee's and then we did we did a trip to Thailand once I paid for a ticket to for, for her to Thailand because you could get a, a like a non-stop flight from Karachi yeah. to Thailand it was only like a three or four hour flight and then we met kind of in the middle in Prague yeah. once mm. during my year in Karachi yeah um, um yeah and then I applied for the, the K visa out of Karachi normally if I had been somewhere a little more hospitable um, to like tourist travel. I could have tried to do um, what's called like a file, like local filing. So you would apply for an immigrant visa in the post where you're at, and then your partner comes and sort of does their interview and everything. But because it's Karachi, mm -hmm. I couldn't really be like, yeah, fly out to Islamabad. We'll totally do right. a local filing. It's cool. So um, we did the K one because it was it was quicker. The petition was going to get approved 
quicker based on what USCIS's website said, and it was just made more yeah. sense for us. So I applied for that, and um, yeah. it got yeah, it got approved, and yeah, and so that's and then I moved the rest to the US in October 2017. Yeah, and then um to Paris in June of 2018. Yeah. So she got to be with me through French training, which was <laughs> which was great. The gift they kept on giving. <laughs> yeah. So you got to Paris just in time for the longest transit strike in history and a global pandemic. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> they oh did win God, the that... World Cup when we got there. That was cool. Oh, oh that's well, right. that's yeah. right. D-Day anniversary. That was cool. That was fun. And like the the armistice. So like there was some cool stuff. Yeah. But also the gilets jaunes, the transit I'd strike. Already, oh my God, yeah. I'd already completely repressed all memory of the transit strike because I think the <laughs> pandemic has overshadowed it. But yeah, that was that was completely insane. Yes. Yeah, great. it was great time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but we actually really loved Paris. Yeah, I love Paris, so, but the transit strike. Was transit a bit strike, much. notwithstanding. Yeah. I think if you're going to France, you kind of assume that you will have a strike experience. Something will strike. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is the fun. national pastime. Anyway. I mean, you know what? Good on him. Like, I can't really, I can't really fault like working people, like trying to get what's theirs. Exactly. Um, but yeah, like it was, it was, yeah, it was a lot in retrospect that was going on in Paris while we were there. It wasn't us. We, I <laughs> us. we didn't do anything. We were just happy to be there. So we like to end our conversations with some questions. This is just a couple of questions that we've come up with. What is your favorite British word? Wanker. <laughs> Crumpets. What is a song that's been playing in your head lately? <laughs> um, oh no, I'm completely blanking. Alison, say something um, quick. Yeah, <laughs> save the question. Actually, find my way, which is the new one. Um, well, new off of Paul McCartney's um, latest album, McCartney Three. But like the version, the mix that he did with Beck. Mm. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, that that is really good. I know one too. Case of You by Joni Mitchell because it's on that playlist yes. that plays in the car all the time. So I bet it's stuck in my oh yeah, California by Joni Mitchell. California it's also by Joni Mitchell. But anyway, I'll stick with the one I gave <laughs> What is a smell that you love and a smell that reminds you of home? A smell that reminds me of home is like the woods after a rain, like pine woods after it's rained. And a smell that I love um, probably like cookies baking, pumpkin pie baking, actually. Oh, that's a good choice. Um, I would say a smell that I love, I mean, this is kind of cliche, but lavender. I really like lavender. Mm -hmm. Everything can smell of lavender. I'd be quite happy with that. <laughs> um, and a smell that reminds me of home, um, I think sort of freshly mown grass, because that always kind of reminds me of sort of summer in Belgium when I was a child. Um, so yeah, I, I would pick that. What is one thing that everyone should see when they're in St. Albans? Um, well, there's, well, there's the cathedral, which is really interesting and really old, but um, I like, but I actually, there's a little church not far from the cathedral that I like better. Um, the name of which I can't remember, so this is really useless. Um, but what I really like is that someone in 1945 drew this kind of um, basically a, a sort of ground plan of it, indicating how old the different pieces are and sort of signed it. And it's been hanging on the wall since 1945. And I'm a big history nerd. So I love that. I'm like, yes, 1940s history person. I see you and I respect you for that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a town with a lot of history, which I like. What are you gonna say? Well, I was gonna say the cathedral, but that sounds that's kind of cliche. <laughs> so I would say actually the market that they have every weekend mm. is really mm. nice. Um, it continued throughout the pandemic, surprisingly. Um, so it was a total like sanity saver. Um, you know, to be able to go and like get even we were just getting fruit or whatever. It was yeah. really nice to have someplace to go that was not a grocery store or a drugstore because um, everything else was pretty much shut down. Um, so yeah, I would say come come on a Saturday and see the market. It's pretty good. What brings you joy? My dog. Aw, very sweet. Usually, um, mostly. <laughs> what brings me joy? 
film magazines from the 1920s or that 30s. Is true. Mm-hmm. They bring Confirm. me joy because mm-hmm. my work is my hobby and my hobby is my work and that's totally healthy. It's fine. No, uh-huh. that's totally lucky. What do you mean? <laughs> that's very lucky. Uh, what gives you hope? Mm. My students. Because I think they're a really good kids. And I actually think, you know, I think, and I say this as a cynical millennial, I think actually Gen Z has a lot of things right. Um, and I think they're going to do good things with the world. I was actually going to say, not my students, because I'm not a teacher, but I was <laughs> going to say sort of the same thing. I think that, um, yeah, when I talk to, to sort of young people, um, like me? No, wait. Oh, okay. She's six years younger. <laughs> six years younger, so non-geriatric millennials um I yeah I agree I think that um when I talk to sort of younger people Gen Z people not younger millennials (laughs) but sure younger millennials too um yeah I just think that they um yeah they have a lot of stuff going for them and they have a lot right and I think that they are on course to hopefully avoid some of the traps that millennials have gotten ensnared in in which millennials have been ensnared um (laughs) So, yeah, I I do think that um, I'm always sort of just very, like, I don't want to say pleasantly surprised because it sounds like I had, like, a bad impression of Gen Z before, which I didn't really. But I'm, I'm always sort of, it's I always find it very refreshing um, when I interact with sort of, even though they were born when I graduated high school now, which is terrifying. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, so that's what, that would be my answer. Which sounds kind of like I'm palming off on on them to fix things, which I don't really want to do. But, but... if they can fix but things, they can. <laughs> you know? yes. don't let us stop you. When do you feel the most American? Mm. I will say when I feel most American. I'm a really big fan of Cracker Barrel. Um, <laughs> that's what makes me feel most American. And Allison used to be really negative about Cracker Barrel, you see, because it's she had true. never been. But then we went once, and now, like, when, when we were in D.C., whenever we drove, she was obsessed. She I was didn't like, get to go my last visit home, and I was, sadness. like, really, really, I'm still a little bummed about it because I don't yeah. know when I'll have a chance to have so, Cracker Barrel again. Yeah, so my love of Cracker Barrel would be my answer. When do I feel most American? Mm, I don't know. I think when, I mean, it's really cliche, but I think on Thanksgiving, actually, mm-hmm. like even if we're not in the States. Um, I still feel very like, you know, we should have a turkey and we yeah. should do like sort of American, like American stuff. And I'm, I'm not necessarily prone to that very often, um, but Thanksgiving I am. Yeah. yeah. We always have a good Thanksgiving spread. We do. Yeah. yeah. Where is home? Mm. You gonna... you know, you oh, first. thanks. Um, <laughs> you're looking at me. I mean, I think right Maine or the UK, honestly, I mean, probably where wherever Lee's is, which is like really. really oh, that's sappy, fine. But, um, but if people, I mean, if people ask me where I'm from, I say Maine. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, home is kind of, and especially if you've been tr- like moving every two years for a decade or more. I think that it's just like home is wherever, you know, my partner and my stuff and my dog are really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think home for me is, is, is Belgium, um, which is where I'm from. Um, But I, and I like it, especially when we're all there. Right. So for example, that's one of the reasons why I really wanted this thing where we dashed across the border to work Mm -hmm. out because last year I went alone for a little bit over New Year's. Um, to see my family, which was lovely, but it is much better when Allison's there and the dog's there, um, when we get to hang out with my family together. Um, so, you know, home home is Belgium, but it is improved by the presence of Allison and the dog. <laughs> the injection of American. There you go, yeah. yeah. What is something that you would like Americans back home to know? <sighs> mm. That there is a world that exists beyond the borders of the United States and that the way that we do things, well, I say we, the way that things are done in the United States is not necessarily the way that things are done elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And it's also not necessarily the best way to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think that, I mean, it's sort of part and parcel of the whole thing. And I, I wish that Americans would understand that um, as English speakers, 
as Americans, we play sort of international experience on easy mode in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are catered to in a lot of ways that people from other countries are not, Um, which I kind of always knew, but especially after, you know, being in a relationship with somebody, a Fleming, who grew up speaking Flemish and was like, like, how many places in the U.S. do people speak Dutch? None place. I mean, (laughs) right? And so I think I think gaining some appreciation for that, um, you know, a little more. But I, I think, yeah, just understanding that, I mean, even the Internet is so American mm. and that's not necessarily a bad thing all the time. But it's like it, it's frustrating to me and I'm American. Mm. And so like particularly, for instance, like I'm on I'm on Jewish Twitter a lot, right? Twitter. And it's all these American Jews who are like, oh, obviously things are like this or like that or like this. And I'll be like. They're not like that here. And you no. see all of these like European or Australian Jewish people being like, no, but we exist. We don't do things that way. And But you just get drowned out by. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So so things that I would want um, Americans to know. I mean, you know, I, I because I, I occupy this sort of weird in between position in a lot of ways. I do also get annoyed with Europeans when they presume things about the US. Um, but I think. One of, and, and I know a lot of Americans do realize that, but um, I would say that the healthcare system is truly dystopian. Mm-hmm. That is one of the things yeah, that I that's, that's, that's one of the things call. that I absolutely because with most things, it's that even people, worse than you think yeah, it is. Because with yeah. most things that Europeans think are bad about the U.S., I'm usually kind of have the urge to sort of be like, let us nuance this a little bit, right? <laughs> but with the healthcare system, I don't. I think it is just genuinely bad, and it needs something major happening to them most of the time so that would be it most of the time i'm telling europeans it's actually even worse than they think it is Um, yeah that would be the major because they don't believe it can be they don't like they hear stories about it her her father was like this my father my poor dad he wouldn't believe her when she would tell him about the healthcare system in the u.s he's like no you must be misunderstanding (laughs) and then i will never forget sitting in a pizza place in georgetown with this man and he, uh, telling him how much like a birth costs in the U.S. if you don't have insurance, and just watching his fate, like I think his soul left his body. <laughs> he, wasn't ready. he was just he like ready for this. And Lisa's sitting there, like I told you, yes. I told you, and I, I was like, yeah, like welcome to America. Yeah, like, what are you gonna? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's how it is. Yeah, the NHS is a miracle, even in its current state. It is a miracle, and people don't and realize. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you both so much for joining us for this conversation. It's been such a great time talking with you, and I learned so much. Same here. Thanks a lot, Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Yeah.